Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. I know many of you already know Don and his work. This has been my first opportunity to, to dive into it, and it's just been a great pleasure, Don. Congratulations on the release of this most recent quarterly essay and uh, yet another tour de force uh, in your interpretation of what is happening in a country that I know you love, uh, the United States, but one that you're willing to look at sharply. Uh, this essay, if you haven't had a chance to read it, folks, is uh, really fantastic. You ought to be looking at it. It's stimulating. Uh, as I think his, is his want, it is often uh, mordant, uh, but it is compelling uh, and insightful. On finishing it, I went right away to see if I could apply for Australian citizenship, in fact. <laughs> That's the secret agenda, really. <laughs> uh, joking aside, uh, you'd get right to the heart, I think, of the contradictions and challenges and darker sides of politics in America today in a way that I think, as you note in, in the work, in a way that few Americans think they can or could. Um, but before we get to the personalities and the uh, prescriptions in this campaign, I wanted to start first with the broader context that you, that you, that you paint, uh, in which you place this election cycle. It's, 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 it's where you place Americans and the American dream at the moment. You devote a lot of time in the essay to painting a picture of what you call malaise and inequality in America, but then go on to explain why that malaise and inequality, strangely enough, is such a taboo topic in America. I wonder if you could set the scene a bit for us by just unpacking that contradiction a little bit as you see it in America. Well, I can try. It's, um, it's, it's funny. Jimmy Carter talked about the American malaise in 1979, I think, and um, he lasted about 24 hours, effectively. Um, <laughs> It looked like it was going well, they say. Uh, I actually spoke to Hendrik Hertzberg, who was his speechwriter at the time, although he insists that he, um, he only typed. It was all Jimmy's work, but speechwriters do that sort of thing. When, and he said, you know, there was, a, there was a moment when it looked like it was going to go down really well, and then all hell broke loose, and Carter really never recovered from his malaise speech. By one interpretation, that of, say, Andrew Basevich, um, that was the last time that any American president tried to question American exceptionalism, tried to actually get Americans to look seriously at the way their society was going, including you know, their deep materialism and their addiction to, to Middle Eastern oil. Um, now, it's, it's, it's strange, but the only person, the people who, the word gets used again and again, but not by people who have any connection to Washington by people like John Updike in the 1990s, by others since. Um, and you can't hang out in certain parts of America without thinking the word is apt. Um, but what you take to be the malaise is rarely what others take to be the malaise. And I think the most striking example of this is the Tea Party. I went to an early Tea Party in southeastern Ohio in 2009 
and it was quite impossible to believe. You couldn't ever have imagined that this ragtag collection of belly acres could ever take over the country, basically, the Republican Party. Um, but what's so striking about this was that they're, they're suffering, this is a Rust Belt city, former population of 65,000, one, one of the sort of mom and pop towns of America. Now downturns, downtown's deserted like so many of these Midwestern and um, you know, heartland cities. Um, population 25,000. There used to be, I think it was nine synagogues in Zanesville. Now there's one, it's a black synagogue. I don't know how many people attend, maybe three or four. Um, it had been deserted. Now, the, but the, the Tea Party, down on a drizzly afternoon, down on the Muskingum River, was not about really what had happened to Zanesville and towns like it at all. It was about the loss of freedom. That's what they kept talking about. Honk if you want freedom, if you love freedom. And you want... Keep the change. And they're in, you know, camo gear and they're on welfare and... Um, but really what concerns them... I mean, if you... If you I'm trying to be quicker about this. If you pull it apart, it, it's, it's really that they transpose what's happened to them into an argument about political rights. And they... Somebody has done this to them, but they refuse to say that it's got anything to do with the economic system. It has to do with elites, with other people, with Chinese, with outsiders, with the presidents who weren't born there, all that sort of thing. In, 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 that, in that light, you, you have a very interesting quote in your uh, work where you quote a uh, Columbia University historian by the name of Richard Hofstadter, hmm. where he writes, the modern right wing feels dispossessed. This is a quote from him. Modern right wing feels dispossessed. American, America has largely been taken away from them, though they are determined to repossess it. The old American virtues have already been eaten away by cosmopolitans hmm. and intellectuals. And the, the quote goes on to include foreigners. Um, their predecessors had discovered conspiracies. The modern radical right finds conspiracy to be betrayal from on high. Now, the audience might be surprised to learn that that was not written in 2016. Hmm. That was written in 1964. Hmm. So what does that tell us? My question is, is the current far right at the end of, is the current far right really at the end of a very long but losing struggle, dating back many decades, uh, or is uh, something different this time? Is Trump the last gasp, or is it something new? I think I think it's both. I I, th I think most of the fractures in American society have been there, if not from the Civil War, even from the founding fathers. You know that. that it is, a, it is a fractured place and it's always depended. Look, I'm, I'm, it's very easy to get lost in America, even when you're just talking about it a long way away. And I'm trying to stay on track here. It's, um, everything has a sort of backstory in the place. It's why Hollywood does so well. They, um, you know, it, what Hofstadter was saying about, he's writing at the, at the height of McCarthyism. Um, it's a, it's a, it, you could transpose it and put Islam there instead of communism, really. Um, when I got out of the airport in Milwaukee, I got in a car, the radio was on an anti-Islam station, full-blown propaganda, covered a little bit by an exegesis of, of the letter to Corinthians, a couple of passages, but then it would go over to the propaganda. 
Islam is, anyone who thinks Islam is anything other than a worldwide conspiracy to destroy Christianity and Western civilization is a fool. There are dangerous people out there doing this. Washington is corrupted by Islam. There are Islamophobe, uh, Islamophiles everywhere. The president's Islamic. Yep, the president's Islamic. Just, just belts you. Now, people would say, oh, yes, but we don't. Not everyone listens to it. Of course they don't. You can switch over to the shock jocks who are saying exactly the same thing and who really, and who have actually put Scott Walker in charge of Wisconsin, effectively, and keep him there. You can get, you can become a bit of a phobic yourself and think this joint is already sort of quasi-fascist. But all it's doing is really playing on really ancient sort of problems in the, in the way America was constructed. It's always depended on two things as far as I can tell. One, this is my you know, grand theory of the United States, that the founding fathers were aware that there could be no republic, no successful republic, no democratic republic, unless there was somewhere for people to own property. So they took the West. They took the, they took the heartland, Wisconsin among them, and then they took the West, and then there was the Pacific, and then there was an open-door foreign policy. And, and really, if you look at American history in the broad, you find that whenever, there's, whenever the frontier is, is working, like in the tech boom of the 90s, well, they need these booms, or after the Second World War, during and after the Second World War, the democracy works. When it doesn't work, it falls apart, and they go back to the old fights, whether they're over race or over... Um, wealth or, or whatever, but the fights remain the same. Um, let, me, let me challenge you on something I found a bit of a contradiction, see if you can help me unpack it a little bit in, in, in the essay. You argue, uh, I think quite interestingly, that about the right wing of the Republican Party, uh, that things that would have been considered radical uh, for a Republican to stand for not so long ago, uh, now is the you know, is the stock phrases of people like Paul Ryan, mm. who I guess we're thinking of as a sort of a moderate now in the Republican Party. Um, and, 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 you, and you make the point that this sort of shift to the right or the radicalization of the right uh, is to blame, is to blame for the device, ultimately it is to blame for the divisiveness and failures that we see in American politics today. Um, but then on the other hand, much of your work I think rightly, identifies real problems. It's not just mm. a question of political uh, manipulation. There are serious problems. Uh, how, do you, how do you square that? I mean, is you know, poverty and equality and race and so forth are real problems. So are Trump and the other sort of radicalized right of the GOP, are they correct to claim to want to address this, these problems? Or are they just exploiting it purely for, for political power? Well, I think probably since Reagan, but let's say since Gingrich, <clears throat> the Republican Party has taken the position with, if they don't have the White House, they'll get the Congress, whatever it takes. And again, Scott Walker is a perfect example of this, through things like redistricting and um, voter rights legislation, which is a way of disfranchising blacks, Latinos and students mainly. Um, so they sew up the states. That's the first thing, but it's also been a policy which Obama's experienced and Clinton did too, which is you know just absolute total, no hands across the aisle business. I mean, and this is a change, and, it, and it's actually it being a great sprawling, disparate, multitudinous federation. It's always needed some kind of accord between the rival parties, um, which Obama back, backed in in two thousand and eight and 
became a cropper because they weren't in a mood to reach across the aisle on anything to team of rivals, phooey. Um, so that's how I would try and ex explain this apparent contradiction that, that in a way the Republic, well, there is another point to that. I mean, a lot that the Republicans have done in office was in a way extreme. I mean, I think, I think Reagan was an, ex an extremist as far as social policy was concerned. I think he's, uh, and I think it, it's had extreme results. Um, and but he was the sunny optimist following the malaise of Jimmy Carter. Yes, I know, I know. I think he, I think he did terrible damage. Um, the, the, the comment about what you're talking about came out of a, of a lunch I had in this golf club in the, in the ritzy part of Madison. It's nearly all pretty prosperous, but this was rather beautiful. With three Republicans and three moderate Republicans and three Hillaryite Democrats and, and a couple of academics who didn't really disclose their ideology for some reason, even after two hours of Waldorf salad. Just like an academic. <laughs> Just like Fair and balanced. He was the former chancellor of the University of Wisconsin. And anyway, I think he was roughly on the Clinton side. But anyway, um, these were allegedly moderate Republicans. But one of them had been a, a congressman in, in, in the 90s. And he was Newt Gingrich's hitman, you know. Um, Scott A. Klug, his name was. He was a very charming fellow. And I thought immediately, you know, he looked like a, a man who did the weather on television. It was more than that. He was actually an anchor man for local TV. He was beautifully groomed and everything, and very charming. But really, his voting record was appalling. Much like Paul Ryan, who has an ability to sound terribly reasonable, another Wisconsinite, really reasonable. He has that sort of dark, moody, Lincolnian sort of features, even. But he's Pew did an analysis of it. No, not Pew. Um, what's his name? Nate Silver did an analysis of, of, of Ryan's attitudes, and he's the most right wing vice presidential candidate since the Civil War, by their measures. So no one in the Republican Party is actually moderate anymore. Mm. They're either by acts of commission or omission, by just sort of sitting still and being defensive or by doing rather radical things. Speaking of your um, uh, lunch mates at that club in, in Madison, I saw some figures today that uh, some polling is, is claiming that a significant number of people will say they know someone who's voting for Trump but would never say so publicly. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but um, yeah. it's, it's something to be thinking about. Um, yeah. Why Wisconsin? You spent most of your time and, and most of the really intimate, I think really interesting and intimate uh, portraits that you paint of individuals, of the places you hang out, of, of the cities you're driving through or walking through, are all in Wisconsin for the most part. Why'd you go there? Well, I didn't want to go to the west or the east coast. I wanted to get out of sort of the standard liberal elite territory, lovely as those places are. But I also didn't want to go to Rust Belt or you know the deep south or anything. I wanted to find somewhere which was sort of notoriously normal, mm. um, which Wisconsin was reputed to be. How did that go? <laughs> well, it started out all right, but um, I didn't have to go further. So I just turned on the radio, and it's become very odd. And um, anyway. Well, in, I think it was 1928, of 130 members of the Wisconsin legislature, only 10 were not progressives. It was a very progressive state 
it actually, you know, uh, old Bob LaFollette came from Wisconsin. LaFollette gave Roosevelt some of his New Deal ideas. Um, it, it was as progressive as any place on earth, really. Um, what happened, it's always been the hands-on across the aisle sort of place. It, it's always had, you know, the heavy industry in Milwaukee, the beautiful capital, Madison, very like Canberra, really, um, with the parliament, you know, the, the Congress at one end, the university at the other, the lakes in between. Um, glorious place. Um, but and a, a Repub what really sold me on going there was a, a Republican of about 15 years ago, a decent sort of a Republican, 25 years ago, said Madison is 30 square miles surrounded by reality. Mm. <laughs> no one's ever said that about Canberra, but they, except in different ways. <laughs> They've said it in a thousand different ways, but I thought that put it beautifully. Reality of, around Wisconsin is sort of dairy farmers. You can't get more normal than dairy farmers, unless you know them. Um, <laughs> or grew up on one. Um, uh, but I found out later that, you know, 40% of the cows in these great red barns are milked by illegal Mexicans. That's not like dairy farming that I know about. Yeah. I wish we'd had illegal Mexicans. <laughs> um, so, you, you, as I said, you, 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 you come, you land in Milwaukee, and downtown Milwaukee used to be, it's still, you know, it's got a nice little sort of postmodern, you know, city centre, but around it, it's 40% black, 15% Latino, hardly, you won't find an Anglo-American there in a million miles. It's all white flight. It's one of the poorest cities in the United States, one of the three or four poorest. It's the most segregated. It has the highest rates of incarceration. It has something like 1,600 evictions a week. Um, it's, it's a completely dysfunctional disaster of a city, and uh, Walker is trying to make it as bad as he possibly can. You drive an invisible line, you come to Waukesha County, which is, is um, uh, Walker's base, and it's purely white. It's the most solid re Republican voting bloc in the United States. You, you cross these invisible lines and these fractures, and there are new ones forming. And you get to Madison, which is solidly Democratic. You know, Bernie Sanders goes there and gets eight or 10 or 20,000 people, as many as they can fit in like a shot. They vote for Bernie in the primary. <coughs> is run by, by a, a mayor who's been nine times elected mayor, the first time just a year or two after he was arrested and beaten up by police in a sit-in in the University of Wisconsin, decided that it, this wasn't the way to go, that municipal politics was the way to go. And he's a kind of equivalent to Sanders Burlington, mm -hmm. Vermont. So I was looking for a kind of peaceful place in which nothing really happened from which to report, as it were. And I found that it's a place that's sort of undergoing tremendous Perhaps representative change. then of yeah. a lot of the... Uh, what you just said about Madison reminded me of this map of the United States that I like thinking about. It's, it's that blue-red map, county by county. Hmm. And of course it's all red, or all blue on the, on the coast, as we know, and increasingly red as you get to the center of the country, representing the Republican uh, base. But, except in the counties where there is either a large university, hmm or it's the state capital. Yeah. It's like Austin, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's sure. that little bit of blue in the middle of Texas. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Let's turn to uh, talk a little bit about the personalities, because I know that's one of the more colorful <laughs> aspects of uh, the campaign in the United States, uh, but not just about them as, as, you know, as their 
quirky personalities, but what maybe deeply what it's telling us about America today. Um, I want to start with Donald Trump. Um, my read of the essay is that you, you, you probably give him more credit than I might be willing to for actually knowing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, allow, you do allow that he may be simply, uh, quote, uh, unconscious self-satire, but I don't think you just sort of throw that out there. I think you, you, you seem to think that, um, that he knows what he's doing. He, he's, he's, got a, he's got a killer instinct, and he's tapping into this angst and alienation in a way that he uh, uh, really knows it. Not only that he knows it, but does he believe it? Does he, does he, do you think he believes what he's saying, or is he simply a salesman you know, in for the kill? Uh, or even, I don't know if you were able to follow this closely enough, to what degree is he simply doing what he's being told to do by what few advisors he has around him as he increasingly recognizes that he has to do this if he really wants the White House? Well, he said, you know, that, he, he, um, that his best thoughts are shallow ones, <laughs> which shows a certain self-knowledge. That's self -knowledge. a deep thought. Yeah, it is a deep thought. That's a, it's a beautiful contradiction. And, and it makes you think that he's formidable, actually, and that he has to be taken seriously. Um, and he also said that he loves leverage. And what he's really, that's in a, no doubt in a business sense, but he's actually discovered that with the media that you can you can have really shallow thoughts and get an awful lot of leverage out of them if you keep doing it all the time. I mean, I worked for a prime minister who had a theory about the, what he called the dirty big rock in the pond, which every now and again, he said, you know, was a way of changing the landscape and so that you, you could get it back on your terms, maybe once every couple of years. Well, Trump has used the dirty big rock in the pond every couple of hours. Like, he just found that you just keep throwing it in, they go on doing your advertising for you. I think he also realised that people watch, or somebody realised for him, but I think he's smart enough to know, that, that most people don't actually listen to news. They, they're watching it while they're on the treadmill at the gym or while in the back of a taxi, or they're, they're just seeing the images and picking them up, and that's really what matters to people. Now, Trump can get up there any time he likes. No one's going to care whether he contradicts himself today or what he says at 9 o'clock isn't consistent with what he says at 12 or whether they... And he's found, to I think his own astonishment, this is where your theory comes in, that it just keeps working and working more and more, that it, you can get more and more bizarre and people will think it's better than Hillary Clinton. Hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that he's also... That's where whoever's behind him, or whether it's he's behind him, I think he's aware of something that the Democrats were not aware of, and still aren't in a way, they're in denial about it, is the depth and the breadth of the loathing for the Clintons. You, you come very close in the essay to calling him a fascist. Uh, is he? Well, uh, I... The great historian of fascism was George Moss, Mosser at University of Wisconsin, as it happens. And I read him when I was at university in the 60s. We studied George Mosser, so it's a nice coincidence. If you, if you look at the criteria which Mosser sets up for what is a fascist, Trump fits almost every, every one. I mean, if in, in, in a condensed form, it is that he's, it's the corporate state. I mean, who, who finances the Tea Party? The Koch brothers. They, they, they run it. But they don't support Trump, do they? No, but they, it, does, it doesn't really matter because, I mean, the Koch brothers... America is becoming a kind of corporate rort for which Trump is providing a kind of corporate ideology, or, or if you like, a political ideology. 
that's really what goes down at these at Tea Party rallies. Um, you, he, Trump takes the vast economic inequality, and it is grotesque, and I don't think that a democracy can live with it for very much longer. He takes it and turns it into a political ideology, which is what fascism was about. You say, it's not that you're impoverished for any reason other than that people have done it to you. Um, government can't fix it. Socialists certainly can't fix it. Islam can't fix it for you. What can fix it for you is me giving you back your past. And the past is a mythic place. There's the past of where you owned America. When you turned on the TV, you saw a white face just like yours. You saw yourself. You didn't see a woman. You didn't see a black. You didn't see a Latino. And you certainly didn't see somebody wearing a, a burqa. Um, I, I think, I mean, I go through them in one by one in this. And, and it, I, I don't, I, I see no, I, what else are you going to call it? I, I think he's taken hold of a set of prejudices in America and turned them into a coherent ideology. That's not to say it, it makes any sense, but it's coherent within itself. Would, with that said then, would, would you agree with what some analysts have said, that many of the uh, sort of alienated voters out there, um, at one point in the essay you, you call them the angry dispossessed, uh, uh, are the same voters that were attracted to Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. um, is that an accurate assessment, or is there a difference between one set of angry dispossessed and another set of angry dispossessed? Well, I think the people who are coming from, um, the Sanders people are probably coming, they're probably more college educated. Uh, they're less likely or less, less likely to say that they're their troubles are caused by elites, but they're, they're going to say that there is a great deal of entitlement amongst the liberal establishment. Um, you know, in general, socialist movements and national socialist movements arose at the same time. Um, one's a variation on the other. Um, I think it's a terrible pity that, I mean, I, this goes down very badly with New York liberals or California Liberals. I think it's a great pity that Sanders didn't get the nomination because I think Sanders would have beaten Trump. Uh, I think there's a great danger that Hillary will lose to him. Mm. I don't mean that I think she's going to, but I think the chances, it's, it's quite possible. Um, and I think Sanders, there is a sort of a, a need for some kind of realignment. America's had a few realignments, three or four in its 200 odd years. It'll, um, it probably needs a realignment now because there are effectively two Republican parties now and two Democratic parties. They put it together for this and Hillary can pull them together if she takes on a lot of Sanders' agenda, domestic agenda. Do you think, let's, let, let's just imagine that Donald Trump loses and uh, do you think this sort of movement is over? Or is it really just a question of a better messenger? Someone like a Ted Cruz uh, mm. stepping in and saying, uh, uh, the, 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 the message is right, but the messenger was wrong. Well, that, that's a truly horrifying prospect, you know, that, that, that Cruz becomes the messenger. I mean, I, I think. This is right in your mordant sweet spot, Don. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the, the, the same Republican, Scott A. Klug, said to me, even if you hate Trump, you've got to thank him for getting rid of Cruz. Um, Ted Cruz is not dead. 
No, I'm sure he's not. But I, I thought actually his performance at the Republican Congress was absolutely astonishing. He, he was icy. I mean, he, he was hated and he stared them all down and he delivered that speech as if he'd never been beaten and he'd be back next time. It was a phenomenal performance. Man has if, if Trump loses, he can stand up and say, yeah. I'm your man. Yeah. Well, um, not something we look forward to. You mentioned, you mentioned Bernie Sanders um, and, 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 and your, uh, I think, hope, as you, I think you say in the essay, that he probably um, would have been the person who is best positioned to bring about this transformation, the change uh, that you see America so desperately needed in its social and economic and political policies. Um, but you, you seem to hold out some hope in the essay that Hillary could, in your words, quote, awaken the old grassroots reformer deep inside and consolidate the progressive movement going forward. That took me a bit by surprise, um, given the otherwise rather gloomy uh, tone uh, I took from your work about America's future. Um, could you say a little bit more then about Hillary, Hillary Clinton and her prospects uh, to, 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 to bring real change or even to govern effectively uh, if she prevails? Well, the first thing I saw her do when I was in the States was address um, Planned Parenthood, her natural constituency, of course. And she was really revving up the base there. And she was brilliant. You, know, you saw what a consummate politician at that level she is, or, or what, a, what a brilliant um, manager of information she is. You know, uh, she, in her lower register, she sounds sincere, um, really quite compelling, incredibly knowledgeable, um, articulate beyond belief, um, unbeatable, you would think. Trump was on at the same time addressing um, the descendant of the Christian coalition, Pat Robertson thing. And he, that was pure Trump too, it was very interesting to watch. It was the first time he'd used, in the whole campaign, he'd used uh, the idiot things, you know, which you look at. And he, um, he, was, he was very awkward. But once he got going and he had the, you know, the necessary protesters and he revved the whole joint up. It was an interesting contrast. At that point, you'd think, Hillary's got to win this. She can't lose this contest. But that lasted about 12 hours. The thing about Hillary is that, I mean, I think what you have to hope with Hillary Clinton is that her, the moral Methodist reemerges where she began, <coughs> the improver, you know, the, the grassroots reformer, um, uh, the woman of conscience, not the, the product of 25 long years of activism at the highest level. Um, I, th I do think that's the main hope. You know, the Democrats tend, tend to be unable to see it from the other side. I mean, if Mitt Romney had made 1.2 million addressing Wall Street and wouldn't reduce, re, you know, release the transcripts of what he said in those four speeches. The Democrats would have made hay with that. Um, if if he'd made 153 million dollars making speeches in the last decade and a half, as the Clintons have, they would have made hay with that too. It's no wonder the Republicans are making hay with that, and no wonder that that, that the public are responding. The emails are another story. Mm. Um, I think she's terribly vulnerable in all this. But on the other hand, she might recognise, because I, th I think her, the, she only has 
I don't think she has any choice. I think it, if, if she wins it, she's got to go for broke for, for the first two years mm -hmm. um, and do something about the inequality. What else is the Democratic Party for if it's not to do something about the fact that, you know, what is it, 75% of the wealth created since 2009 has gone to 1% of the population? Um, they're not just figures. They're, they have astonishing effects. I mean, the, these places are now, large parts of the US just simply don't work. The, um, the, uh, the, the race as it stands now, I think uh, we see the sort of tables turning uh, in terms of the electoral college. I mean, I know that uh, you know, Democrat partisans were uh, very unhappy with the way the the Electoral College ended up working against them in the case of uh, the 2000 election of mm. uh, Gore versus Bush, where uh, you know the popular election went to Al Gore, um, but by the Electoral College, by well, of course, with the Florida controversy, but nevertheless, ultimately, on the basis of the Electoral College vote, went to George W. Bush. Um, so too, this election, I could envision possibly a similar situation where uh, the popular vote's gonna be extremely close. Yeah, well, if you want to, you think I'm mordant, imagine, imagine it's decided in favor of Trump or Clinton in the same way that it was decided mm. in 2000. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. But we have to uh, maybe bring it to a close, but I don't want you to sh necessarily take this answer briefly. Um, but just to uh, ask you this, uh, what should Australians be uh, more concerned about then? Uh, is, it, is, it a, is, it a Trump, is it a Trump presidency with his cynicism and even sort of detachment from reality, it seems, in some cases? Uh, or is it a, uh, a Clinton presidency that seems to be all about uh, entitlement and noblesse oblige at this point? Uh, I, think, I, I think we should all, if, if you can pray, you should pray for Hillary. Um, I didn't think I'd ever say that. If anyone's listening. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, think, I, I don't think there's any question. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm never in any danger of being offered a gig at the Brookings Institute or anything, but I, but I, I think um, um, I'm not a fan of Hillary, Hillary's foreign policy one bit. Right. Um, and um, that's why I would... I would pray with my fingers crossed, I guess. Um, but I don't, um, I don't think there's any question about that. But and I, I think what we, we really should hope for is that, is that Clinton wins and Clinton acts. Mm. I mean, as, a, as, a, as one measure, it, it's too late now, almost certainly. But, you know, I'm, I don't have to be president. But had Obama, prosecuted one person out of the financial collapse, had he gone after one really seriously, it would have been a signal that he could, it would have been so powerful. I mean, it would have, it would have in a way, undone the Tea Party narrative. You know, had they gone after these people? Not a single one of them. And really, they didn't go after them because the legal system didn't, in the end, those who looked at it decided that it couldn't be done. Um, they would resist it all the way down, and in the end, if you, and if you lost one, you'd never win another one. So they just gave it away, um, and enriched them instead. So, you know, I don't think that story is going to go away 
except by um, some kind of countervailing action, which is, it, it won't be prosecutions, um, although I, I, I don't think they should rule it out. But, um, you know, when you can do 20 years for having a couple of grams of marijuana, if it's your third offence, and these characters. Mm. Which, which strikes me as all the more odd that you have a, a, a person like Donald Trump who himself, while not a Wall Street financier, is nevertheless uh, a sort of classic New Yorker billionaire who has mismanaged all sorts of financial arrangements to the detriment of the little man Absolutely. in many cases. This is where it becomes, you know, somehow you start, you know, at, at, at this point you begin to think the more bizarre the better mm. for Trump. I mean, it doesn't matter how bizarre, it just gets crazier and crazier and crazier, it works even better. Don mentioned that uh, you know his his thinking about the Clinton foreign policy. We didn't get a chance to talk about that. Maybe some folks in the audience would like to raise that. Uh, really great uh, portions of the essay devoted to so sort of translating the interpretation of American individualism and communitarianism and exceptionalism, not just inside the country, but how it projects itself outward is really, really fascinating and again uh, troubling in many respects. Look, we've got about uh, 20 minutes, I'd say, um, to wrap up before, uh, we're gonna know about 15, I think we have to wrap up by about five or seven. So if you wouldn't mind uh, just identify, you know, raising your hand so I can see you, and then uh, we'll, uh, you, you ought to say who you are and so forth so Don knows where you're coming from and, and raise your question, please. We have, well, there's a young man, okay, here we go. We'll get back to you in just a second. So there's a gentleman up there in the, in the, who would like to speak, go ahead. Don, can you just talk a little bit more about this? Yes, well, it, I mean, it, it's, I don't think it's entirely rational, but I, you know, if you could, people have all sorts of reasons for thinking that she is indeed a liar. Well, you know, she's not the only one. Um, um, but, he, you know, he's, he's branded her that way. I th even liberals who, who will vote for her think that she has, that she somehow radiates a sense of entitlement that the Clintons do, and that this is a problem for them. I think what's probably at bottom is rather like what concerned the Tea Party, although they could never say it, except among themselves, uh, concerned them about Obama. He was black, you know, and his wife, you know, was a, a descendant of slaves. I mean, they, that, it was really hard to take, and it still worries them, you can see. Um, and with the, Hillary, the Clinton thing, I think, is there is something wrong with those two being back in the White House, that this isn't really a democracy working if you've got something resembling a dynasty, where they can just sort of wrap it up themselves and have the White House back. The White House belongs to, to everybody, if you like. And this is sort of, sort of a touch point for that feeling that the country's being taken, been taken away from them. And to have the Clintons back there is, is at very least symbolic of that same thing. Sir, did you get the microphone? There you are, okay. Is there anyone over on this side who'd like to raise a question? Next. There's a gentleman way in the back who has his hand up. Go ahead, sir. Given the separation of powers? Hmm. 
Well, there are some um, Supreme Court appointments coming up. I mean, I think that's as much of a concern if, if you're a Democrat living in the, or if you're a reasonable person living in the United States, I think the thing that would bother you almost as much as anything else are the sorts of people that Trump would put on the Supreme Court. Um, it, look, it would be, it would certainly mean that you know, the Citizens United is there to stay, that Ray V. Woe will go. Will go. Um, um, there are probably any number of others, but it would be a, there have been some real crook people stuck on the Supreme Court in recent times, and, and it would be much worse after Trump had dealt with it, I think. Um, I think it would just slow America down. I mean, I, I, look, it feels to me as if, if it does not pull itself out of this quite quickly and reverse particularly the inequalities which, as they are expressed in concrete terms across the country, if that's not reversed, it's hard to imagine how, whatever the result in November, it's hard to imagine how it's going to be any better in four years or eight years' time. It's very easy to imagine how it's going to be a great deal worse. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen there, thank you. Anyone else want to? Um, look, I think I think that the Tea Party, the, the the roots of the Tea Party go much deeper, and uh, you know I don't think I mean Pauline Hanson isn't going to get up and spout the founding fathers in defence of her policies. Even if we had founding fathers of that kind, I doubt whether she'd be able to spout them. These people learn them at school. That's all they know. I don't know whether she's um, um, a Darwinist or not, but in, I doubt it somehow. But I mean, I, I, by that I mean these Tea Party places are deeply, deeply regressive, um, and they have been for a long while. In Zanesville, schools don't teach evolution. In many places across the United States, they're you know, you, it's 4004 BC, basically. Um, it all starts. Um, it is, it's troubling in a way that you don't feel when you're in central western Queensland, troubling as that can be. <laughs> right, we have a, a, a gentleman here and a, a woman here has also raised her hand. If we could bring the microphone down here, that'd be great. Please, sir. Um, so having been on Well, I've never been inside an American press pack. I mean, I've read various accounts by Joan Didion and David Foster Wallace, which make it sound like it's a place I'd like to be, but I wouldn't have the stamina for. Um, that, by the way, is one of the freakish things. I mean, how they keep campaigning for 18 months, effectively, I have no idea. Um, 
I think, I mean, I, I think that's something that we might um, consider that, you know, before we join the general, you know, slugfest with the ABC, you know, that comes out every year. Um, I, I think perish the thought that we end up with the same sort of news networks that the Americans have um, and which dominate the news, those sort of endless split screens of people waiting to pounce, of endless punditry, um, with never any, any depth, often a lot of patent ignorance and stupidity, um, and always breaking stories, you know, every, stories are breaking all the time, and of course, you know, I, I end up with a description of, or do I begin, I can't remember, but, um, um, you know, all at the same time, Hillary speaks, Clinton's speaking, Trump's speaking, there are half a dozen pundits lined up in the script, uh, split screen. Muhammad ba Ali is having a memorial service in the Kentucky Fried Chicken Yum Center down in Kentucky, down in Louisville. The Yum Center, what a place to go out in the Yum Center. Um, and then suddenly there's somebody, there's a shooting incident at, at, a, at Love Field, Dallas, at an airport. And of course that must be a it must be speculated upon. So everyone goes there, and you see this bloke firing nine shots into the, into the doorway of the airfield. And, and so for five or six hours, this is a breaking potential terrorist incident. And you realize that Trump has just said before they cut away that they're everywhere and they're happening all the time. And there's another one happening. And it, it turned out this bloke had been slighted by his girl. She'd kicked him out, she'd jumped at the airport, didn't want to see him again, and he'd thrown a witch's hat at her <laughs> off the road. Uh, several, really. <laughs> anyway, he survived the nine shots. I don't know what was going on there. But, <laughs> but, and you see, this is a kind of madhouse that's happening over and over and over again, and no one is really taking in anything that might you know, constitute reason. We have two ladies who have been very patient here, and we probably have time for one or two more questions after that. So. Um, I'm a historian of too little wit to be able to <laughs> answer that question, but people have argued it. I mean, sensible people have argued it. I, my feeling is that it's going through a, I don't know whether it's a decline of Rome period. Sometimes it feels like Rome. You know, you can drive into Washington, D.C. sometimes and think, this must have been what it was like to come in in a cart, you know, into Rome. The dome glows and it is the sort of centre of the imperium. The only thing is that most Americans don't believe they live in an empire, that they have anything to do with an empire. It's a completely foreign concept. Even though the founding fathers were very conscious of the fact that you know, they might well... It was a, one of the early debates was whether a republic could be an empire. And the Monroe Doctrine 40 years later basically declared that America would be an empire and had to be an empire to actually have the republic survive. That contradiction is the sort of central split in the whole business. Whether it's in, I think it is in decline. It doesn't mean it can't recover, but, but it's in a, it's as wounded socially now, I think, as it was in uh, 1930. Um, whether it's as bad as 1860, I don't know. But it's, um, 
it's in deep strife. I don't think there's any question about that, but it's, it does have a fantastic capacity for self-repair, but we just go on hoping. Please, and then we had one more question there at the back, I think, so please first, thank you. Thank you, just referring back to that sense of um, entitlement that the, the, the electric field in relation to Clinton, and no doubt may have got quite as much in relation to Bush, because Bush, you know, we had the Bush families, then it was Jeeves as the next mm. president, etc. That, that kind of thing, and it reminds me, if you like, of a prelude to the next version of House Cards, Mm. You've got all these amazing things happening in the onion world. But I'd like to ask if, if I haven't yet read uh, your copy of it, if there's any reference in there about how either or of the, the candidates would be looking at the possible issues affecting the China, uh, US, and, and Australia's role in that sort of repivoting that international relationship. Well, like I say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm totally out of my depth on those sorts of questions and, and I'm, I'm, there's bound to be people here including the one sitting next to me who knows a great deal more about it so I'll tread really carefully if you don't mind. Um, I, I, I have no idea what the answer would be um, to any of that. I don't, I don't get the impression however that Australia has quite the clout in Washington that Kim Beasley and others think we have, um, <laughs> much as I like Kim. But I don't, I don't ever get the feeling that we are a powerful force in the halls of Washington um, at all. And that's not to say that our relationship, I mean, there's not much else to choose from. <laughs> that's, that's our problem, you know. We can. You know, New Zealand isn't an option for us, I don't think. <laughs> Except to go there, there's still plenty of room. Um, and have, have a moral option without having to do much about it. Um, but I, I don't know, I, you know there, like I say, I, it's a question that interests me, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to pronounce think, on it. I think, um, just to inter interject a little bit, um, the, the portrait I took from your essay about American exceptionalism and, and still a, a belief that it is the moral power, that you know, still the city on the hill, still supposed to be a beacon uh, for um, the world, that, that that isn't just rhetoric. I mean, I think you, you, you would, I think, argue that that's pretty powerful. And when you apply that then to China mm. and what we're going to do about China, I think um, we're seeing already, I'm not, I'm not predicting conflict, but I think we are beginning to see much more powerfully how our two systems are increasingly in, in tension with one another on the, on the values issue alone. Yeah. Set aside issues of hegemony and, and potential conflict and all the rest. I think we have time for one more question, and you've been very patient, ma'am, please. That the uh, well, I don't think there's any uh, look. It's not only because I mean, but I don't think there's any question that there's a deep strain of misogyny running through the whole thing. The only thing that you know, and one has to tread carefully in this as well. It, it's if that the the misogyny is is really a a cultural matter as well. I mean, liberal Democrats in New York will 
can talk identity politics without ever offending anybody, except if they were overheard in large parts of America where both men and women would find their identity politics horrific and insulting, and it would persuade them to vote Trump if they hadn't thought about it before. Uh, that can't be me, I turned it off. <laughs> um, turn off your phones, please, will you? <laughs> God, there's nothing you can do. There's no rest. Um, identity politics. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, th th this is part of the business of their, of their thinking, well, you know, I'm a white male, or I'm, you know, the husband or the partner of a white male, and I like it the way it was because he liked it the way it was, if you know what I mean. There, there, you know, it, it is a, it's a deep cultural thing, not just a question of what is a sort of philosophical position, if you like, about where women should stand in society. I mean, it's, <laughs> and goodbye to you. The, the, um, the um, you know, I mean, uh, in a way, what Howard was saying, if I dare mention his name, the oracle was saying the other day um, <laughs> about women and the parliament. You know, what Howard, you know, he's not, no longer, they're, they're always in the ring, they're always, it's always politics, however long <laughs> they've been out of it. And I mean, really what he was saying was that he understands, you know, women in central West Queensland and many other places. Um, so, you know, and the, the debate gets very confused if you only read The New Yorker, hmm. if you know what I mean. That's right. the, the only other thing I was going to say, it really in answer to your question, is that I, you know, I think in a way it's a pity that Obama can't serve another term. Um, and I found Americans who agreed with this and some who would have cut my throat for saying it, but that you get the feeling that Obama at least knows what he's doing now. Um, and he's got it figured pretty well. Mm. And it, it, whether the transition to Hillary will be as seamless as they, they're all pelsy these days, as you've noticed. Um, I don't know whether it will be as seamless because, you know, Hillary's record is rather different to Obama's on Syria, for instance. Um, I just worry that Hillary Clinton is very anxious to be a hawk on everything. And whether that's an overcompensation or something going on there, I don't know. But um, I don't think she's as, I don't think she's quite as clever as Obama. Or there's some word for it, I don't know what it is. But it, I, I would feel safer in his hands. It may be only a coincidence, but I'm sure there's some causation. Uh, his polling ratings, his popularity ratings are at the, about the highest they've been in his entire presidency. Um, maybe because he's out the door, but maybe because people are realizing just what they may have coming. Yeah, I think that's um, right. With that, Colin, please. To relativity. Professor Murray Beard is a eminent classical uh, professor from Cambridge, and I don't know whether many people have been uh, read his book called Adonis Light. Now, in respect of our John here tonight, it's seems appropriate to quote from a column last week, which is called Why Donald Trump Really Likes Julius Caesar. Uh, she writes, part of the beauty of it, the beauty of it, i.e. that's the Caesar comparison, is it works both sides. For the Democrats, Caesar's the man who brought down democracy, and that she did in order to set the rule of the emperors. The 
Trump like seizes the man who cleared up the mess of a major problem and ushered in the Pax Romana, aka the Pax Americana. Mary Jean, however, thinks that the one thing that Steve and Trump have in common was their hair, or lack of it. <laughs> and that she quotes Roman legionnaires comparing the to the effect of Romans look up your wives, the bald adulterer is back in the crown. <laughs> Who's that Tory for that? Let's hope that America's not in a leadership class behind like it like Romans were mentioned earlier, because Trump's fair test has seen some huge accretion of rich by the top 1%, the weakness of the Senate, and interestingly, in the financial times last week, the same one, the growth of algorithmically almost slave-like organizations which are ruled by Amazon and Walmart. All things to think about. But we had a lot to think about tonight in our two conversation rooms. Could you please thank Don Watson and Dave Gill for the most informative and engaging. Thank you, Dan. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.